0: If you have your Bibles, we will be continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 17, and we'll be focusing in on verses 11 through 19. So last week, J.D. led us through the first portion of this chapter where we consider what it means to be a servant of God. Jesus gives his disciples this task to forgive over and over again, to which leads them to cry out, this is impossible. Give us more faith. And then Jesus turns and says, this is what it means to be a servant, to do your duty. This text today feels like a sort of, you know, uh, scene change in a movie where all of a sudden there's just this cut and you find Jesus walking on the road. But the texts are connected as we consider what is it that is our duty to God? And we read in Luke 17 through the story of these lepers. And we read there, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. And then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. Our sermon series this semester in the Gospel of Luke is titled Forward unto Jerusalem. And this is especially fitting for our text today, given that it begins with the words, on the way to Jerusalem. Now, as a church, we have been following Jesus in all of his travels since Luke 9, and that's taken us a little over two years to do. But with this little phrase, on the way to Jerusalem, we see the narrative shifting into its final phase. You know, if you can if we can quote the you know, iconic line from Avengers Infinity War, Dr. Strange says, we are in, in the end game now. This phrase tells us we are entering the end game of Luke's gospel. The path, as Jesus knows, that he's on, on his way to Jerusalem, will lead him to the cross. And so as we approach this end game, every interaction from chapter 17 through chapter 19 are 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 in just have all of this added significance, right? You can have you ever read a novel and you can feel you know all the foreshadowing, all the hints all along the time you're reading. You're kind of like, that's going to come back. That's going to mean something at some point. And then whenever they all start to culminate at one time, the book just starts rolling, and you feel like you can't put down the book because you feel we are entering the end game. All of these interactions have more significance in Jesus. In chapter 19, right before he steps into Jerusalem, will give us the summary statement that consummates all of these interactions when he says, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Everything between chapter 17, verse 11, and chapter 19, before he steps into Jerusalem, will be defined by that statement, Jesus has come to save and seek the lost. Now, in our text today, we see Jesus saving a group of ten lepers, whose existence in so many ways is defined by being lost. And Luke highlights how these 10 respond to his gracious saving. Nine respond wrongly and one responds rightly. So with this charged atmosphere of the end game, the text presents us with just a very simple question that Luke sees as of the utmost importance. How can we, respond rightly to Jesus. How can we be like the one and not like the nine? And so today I want us to answer that question. I want us to break down this story to understand what does it mean to respond to Jesus rightly? And we're going to do that by looking at three aspects of the story. We're going to see first the state of the lepers. Then we'll look at the saving of the lepers and lastly we will see the response of the lepers. And so first, we're gonna look at the state of the lepers. So during the time of Jesus, one of the worst things that could happen to you would be that you would contract some sort of skin disease that would leave you with the title of leper. Now, to be a leper is, or to have leprosy is not the same as in the modern day usage where it refers to one specific type of ailment. This was any sort of skin disease you would be titled a leprous person. It was like a class of people, and you would be excluded in so many ways. Before the advent of modern medicine, the only ability they had to combat the spread of this would be quarantine. Now, when we think of quarantine, you know, you may go, your mind may go back to the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic in, in 2020, and you may think of, okay, quarantine is like when you shut yourself in your house for 14 days and you consume, 20 seasons of Survivor, some show, and uh, you know after that you just need to wear a mask for a little bit. But the practice in the ancient world was much more severe than anything we may have, even the worst of your pandemic experiences. In Leviticus 13.45, we're given a glimpse of someone's situation who's found to have a so- this sort of skin disease. This is what the Levitical law tells them they are to do. It says, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes, let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean, and he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside of the camp. It's pretty harsh, right? As one commentator points out, to be considered a leprous person was was to have all sorts of both Social and spiritual ramifications. So socially, you were removed as far away from the people as you possibly could be. Now, this was, like I said, way more than wearing a mask. Lepers, by their clothes, by their hair, by their voice, everything had to communicate. Just by looking at them, if you saw them coming down the road, it was meant to communicate, stay away from me. They couldn't even come into the camp. They were social pariahs. In the ultimate sense of the word. But spiritually, that also meant that you were removed from the worship of God's people. You were removed as far as you possibly could be from the temple. In Numbers 5, we see Moses and the people of Israel obeying these laws. They they actually go and they they tell the people who have these skin diseases, you have to go outside of the camp. And the reason uh, God speaks to them and the reason is clear why they are to do this. God says that they must do this because that they may not defile, speaking of the lepers, they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. To be leprous did not, necessarily, did not mean that you were considered sinful. It's a common misunderstanding of how the laws of clean and unclean worked. But it did mean that until you were healed, you could not participate in the blessings of the worship of God's people. So for those who had permanent skin diseases, like the leprosy that we know of today, their exclusion and their shame were permanent. So when when COVID first started, I can remember that there were some people in my small group at our church in Florida who had come to the belief that I had gone to small group while sick with COVID and had infected a lot of people there. Now, I maintain to this day that I was completely innocent. I did not have the disease whenever I went. As far as I know, I don't believe it was my fault. But as silly and as as crazy as it may sound, there were people that were actually very frustrated with me, that they thought that I had come and gotten all these people sick. Now, again, it's it's silly and it's it's weird. But if we can take my situation and say, what would it be like if we still applied the laws of uh, the Levitical priesthood today? What I would have had to do is that every time I wanted to go to small group, or every time I wanted to go to church, I would have to stand outside and ask people who are walking in the sidewalk to go into small group. I'd have to yell out to them, it was me, I'm the one that got everyone sick. And even still, I would have to stand outside church. I'd be barred from worship forevermore. The state of the lepers in Luke 17 is so much worse than we, that it may even seem on the surface. Why is it that they are outside of the village? Because that's where they've been forced. Why is it that they stand at a distance and call out, Lord have mercy? It's because that's as close as they might come. The unclean are excluded from worship. Their status is in every way defined by shame and exclusion. Now for us, these two, shame and exclusion, are all too common to the human condition. And they represent for us two ways that we can find ourselves relating or responding to Jesus wrongly. So first, there's the way of shame. Shame lies to us about God's disposition towards us. Now, I'm sure that there's some of you here today, some of you here, that when you think of how you relate to God, all you can think about is how your relationship with God is defined by your shame. For some of you, you think about the mistakes that you've made in the past, you, you, whatever it may be. You know, you went too far in a relationship or something like that. And every day when you think about what you did, or you think about what was done to you, or you think about all the people that are affected by the decisions that you've made, you feel shame. Or others of you. You feel like you don't fit in with all these churchy you know, people. You have questions and doubts. And you don't have answers. You don't feel very put together. In fact, just because you don't feel like your faith is all that strong, you you feel ashamed to even call yourself a Christian. You feel that every time you pass by the people of God, even without having to say it out loud, you can feel that people know that you're saying unclean, unclean. And even though you've tried to draw near, you feel like you're on the outside. God simply does not want you to be close. For some of you, who are maybe new to Christianity, or maybe you're outside of Christianity altogether, you would not consider yourself a Christian, you may look at Christianity from the outside and think, shame is exactly what Christians want us to feel. Is that not the whole project of Christianity? Shame on you for your lifestyle. Or shame on you for not agreeing with us in all these ways. Shame, 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 shame on you until you change. If you're someone here who feels that, then you know that shame robs you of the ability to see anything good coming from God viewed in this way God himself is so ashamed of you that he can't even look at you you can't draw near to him because your primary disposition towards God is that i have to hide all the things that lo- makes God look at me and sees uh, that makes God look at me and feel ashamed you cannot build a relationship with God on the foundation of shame Shame leads us to relate and respond to God wrongly. But second, there's the way of exclusion. Exclusion is the reality that we cannot respond to Jesus at all if we are not cleansed of our sins. So each one of us today find ourselves in the state of the lepers far more than we want to realize. The point of the cleanliness laws was not to force shame upon their heads. That was not the whole point. Rather, cleanliness laws were meant to tell us something deeply true about each and every one of our states before God. The cleanliness laws, at their core, were meant to illustrate that entering into the presence of God was not something someone could just do willy-nilly. You couldn't just walk into the presence of God without first being cleansed. Now each one of us, whether we feel it or not, are excluded from the presence of God by our sins. We are removed far away from him as we could possibly be by the infection of sin that consumes us. And we stand under a far worse sentence than these lepers because our disease is not merely skin deep but penetrates all the way to our hearts. And without our hearts being healed, we will be removed from his presence into eternal separation forever and ever. Our exclusion will be permanent. Okay, now this is all the bad news thus far, but when we take a point into our hands and say we're going to talk about the state of the lepers, there's not exactly too much good news to be found in their situation. But the reason we start here is because this is the first building block in understanding how we can turn and respond to Jesus rightly. We have to see our need so that we can understand how deeply in need of God's grace and God's goodness we actually are. Shame will hide that fact from you. Shame, it feels like you're really wallowing in your need, but really you're not understanding it completely. Exclusion keeps you from experiencing God's grace and goodness. So that's what the state of the lepers shows us. But the good news of the text comes next. To our shame and to our exclusion, to our sin, We have a Savior who does not shame and exclude us, but in response to our crying out, Jesus, Master, heal us, have mercy on us. This is what we see next, the saving of the lepers. So for us to understand the full scope of the saving of the lepers, we need to briefly step back and consider the function of all of Jesus' healings across the Gospel of Luke. So if we jump all the way back to Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus at the very beginning of His ministry quotes from the book of Isaiah in chapter 61, and He takes this text and He says, this is what my ministry is going to be defined by. He reads from it and says, in your hearing this has been fulfilled. And in Isaiah 61, we see a servant of God, anointed by the Holy Spirit, bringing healing for all of God's people. So you can can see Jesus is beginning to give us these little clues to who he really is. After he does this, after he reads from Isaiah 61, the next three chapters, uh, Luke 4 through Luke 7, are just Jesus walking around doing healings. And that leads to another climactic scene. John the Baptist hears all that Jesus is doing. He hears of this guy going around healing people in the name of God. And he sends his messenger to figure out who this Jesus is. And in Luke 7 20, they ask him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, Jesus does not answer. He just responds by doing, spending the next hour healing people of diseases. He's just like, watch this. And then after that, he turns and he looks at the disciples of John and he says, go and tell John. What you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. So, again, like in Luke 4, he doesn't answer the question outright. When he starts his ministry, he doesn't come and immediately stand on the pulpit and say, Here I am, I'm God, and I'm here to do everything that I said I would do in the Old Testament. But he gives us these clues. Jesus doesn't answer outright, but the message is clear. Look at what he's doing. Look at how the power of death is being reversed. Look at the lepers who are being cleansed. Look at the good news that I'm bringing. The healings are this slow but purposeful unfolding of Jesus' identity as God in the flesh. Now, have any of you guys ever played the game fishbowl? Or you may know it by another name called salad bowl. I don't really like this game. I feel like the, the rules are applied unevenly. The more competitive it gets, the more forceful some people get with how they should be applied, and the looser some people get. It's one of the band games that we have at Youth Group. But the way that the game works is that every player is to put three things in a bowl. They're supposed to put a, a person, a place, and a thing. And then you divide into each teams, and you try to guess as many of these names in the allotted time as you can, but in each round, the mechanic of how you're going to, t- to give clues about these words changes. So in the first round, let's say the mechanic is catchphrase. If you guys know the game Catchphrase, whoever's giving the clues can say anything about that piece of paper what the name on the piece of paper. They just cannot say the name. Then in the second round, you say the password is, uh, or the mechanic is password. So in this round, you only get one word. And I, s- I swear to you, ums and uhs count, OK? You get one word to describe. Uh, to describe what's on the piece of paper, one word. And in the last round, the, can't, the mechanic may be charades. You can't use any words at all. You can't point. You can't you know, use sign language. You have to act out whatever's on the paper for your team to guess. Now, I don't mean to suggest that Jesus was playing games with his identity. Like, he wasn't toying with people. The Gospel of Luke is not some prolonged game of fishbowl. You, Luke starts off his Gospel by literally having an angel come to Mary and say, this is the Son of God. But the way that his identity is slowly unraveled through the rest of the book is like this game played backwards. At first, it's like charades. Jesus acts in ways that speak to his identity as the Son of God without outright saying it. Then, like password, he begins to share a little bit more these small phrases, passing statements that are packed with meaning. But when we get to Luke 17, we enter this end game, this charged atmosphere. Jesus heals the lepers, and he comes right out and says it. He heals the one, the one returns and praises him. And Jesus says, was no one found to return and what? Give praise to God, except this foreigner. So Jesus acts within these clear paradigm of Israel's scriptures to communicate what he has come to do. Jesus is is Israel's God come to heal them. Now, so for the lepers, whose disease had left them in shame, Tattered clothes, long hair, telling everyone that passes by them that they cannot come near. This means that Israel's God has come in the flesh. That he is not ashamed of them, but that he has come to remove their shame. So to those of us here today living in shame or relating to God by our shame, fearing what God might think of us, look at the Savior. When the unclean meets Jesus, we see this time and time again in his healings. Jesus is not then made unclean himself, but rather the person who is unclean is made clean. Jesus isn't, you know, like, you icky, yes, stay at your distance, lepers. I don't want you anywhere near me. No, when Jesus comes near those who are unclean, they become clean. So no matter what you've done or how lowly you think of yourself, no matter how you think God looks at you, if you think God looks at you, and all he thinks is, is how, how ashamed he is of you, Jesus has come near to you to save you, to heal you, to remove your shame. But also for the lepers, whose disease had left them excluded from worship. This meant that God himself has come to restore them. He does not leave them on the margins, You know, separated from him, stay outside of the village, stay outside of the camp, stay outside of the kingdom of heaven. But he comes near to them to restore fellowship with them. So, for each one of us who by our sins are justly separated from God, this moment with the lepers carries all of the hope in the world. Because in this moment, though we have rendered ourselves unclean and justly separated from him, we see that God has moved near to us by taking on flesh. We see that he has moved near us so that we might enter into a relationship with him. If we can project forward on, on this path to Jerusalem, we can see where it ends. We'll see how far that Jesus will go to save his people. Jesus will follow that road to Jerusalem where he will be crucified for his claim that he is God. And on that cross, he will bear the full weight of our punishment for each one of our sins. All that has kept us separated from God, all that leaves us in our shame, the Son of God takes in our place. The famous hymn, Man of Sorrow, sings of this moment at the cross, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, condemned, he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. What's our response? Hallelujah. What a Savior. The saving of the lepers gives us a taste of what our salvation means. It means no more shame. You can live free from shame and free to joy because this Savior has borne your shame for you. It means no more exclusion. You can come near to him in praise because in your place he has stood condemned. That's the gospel we see in Jesus' interactions with these lepers. But now as we close in our last point, I want us to turn and I want us to consider how we might respond or the responses of the lepers at the end of this passage. As so a third, we see the response of the lepers. And likewise, there we see how we should respond to what Jesus has done to save us. In light of this saving, how should, do the lepers respond? How should we respond? Now, I would not consider myself to be an appreciator of fine art, though I wish I were. I often look at paintings and I feel like I simply don't know enough about the craft, the medium, the skill that it takes to produce something like this. And so it leads me to feel all the time, even when I'm looking, you know, I'm at a museum in New York City that I'm like looking at it. I'm like, I know that Vincent van Gogh is a great painter, but I'm just going to take your word at it. I don't quite get it. But I'm learning. It's something that I really do want to grow in and understand more. It just doesn't come naturally, naturally to me. But what that means is that when I go to an art museum, I feel like I am extremely dependent on the little placard that's usually on the wall right beside it. It describes what's going on. And, and usually by reading that, I can come to a better and deeper understanding of, of all that's gone into this one work of art. And so in this week, in, in preparation, I was searching online, and I found this painting by James Christensen that shows the scene of the 10 lepers immediately after they've been healed. So much of what you're about to hear comes from that placard. In this painting, you see the nine lepers. And they're still, they're still clothed in their tattered wrappings. And they're moving, they're moving from left to right. You know, or I'm trying to think. So not this is my left. So you know, they're moving from this way. And and, and you can see just in the way that they're depicted, it's like this Mardi Gras parade. Some of them look like they're singing. Some of them look like they're dancing. They're talking to one another. They got their hands raised. It's almost to the point of chaos. And every aspect of the depiction moves from right to left as if you were reading a book. So right to left. I can't, it's hard with the stage presence. As if you're reading a book to the edge of the picture where you see the lone leper. He's standing still. The group has moved past him, they've progressed, they've moved on, and he is standing still on the edge of the painting. And his eyes are pointed away from them, outside of the border. He's looking at something off screen. And his hands are held up as he's looking, because he's realizing something. He's realizing what's really ha- that's happened. Now what I found so amazing about this painting is that without depicting Jesus at all, only the 10 lepers are shown, you see more of Jesus than you would if he was standing right there. You can look up the painting later. I'm sure that describing a painting kind of defeats the purpose of doing a painting at all. But I wanted to, to share how this artist conceived of the scene. But it's because I think they capture the heart of what separates the right response to Jesus from the one, or the wrong response to Jesus, from the one leper who responds rightly. Christensen's painting captures that the reason the one's response is different from the other nine is because he alone looks to the source of his healing. Look back at our text. When Jesus heals them, he instructs them to do what? Go and show yourselves to the priest. So in the Levitical law, the priests were given this task of being sort of Israel's health inspectors. If you were previously deemed unclean and you felt like you had become clean again, your disease is gone, or, or, or you had gone through the prescribed ceremonial rituals that you had to do, you could go to the priest and the priest would check you out, give you, you know, their stamp of approval, and you were again admitted into worship. So here Jesus heals them, and in a moment their shame and their exclusion melts away. I mean, no wonder. It feels like they get up and they run to the priest, Right? I'm sure they couldn't wait to rush into the village that they were forbidden to enter. And I'm sure they couldn't wait to rush into the temple that they had not worshipped in in so long and say, look, we're clean. Our shame is gone. Our exclusion has ended. You know, what's the problem with that? It doesn't quite fit. You know, it feels like we know we're supposed to, uh, you know, be ashamed at them or, or say, like, this is not the correct response. But it feels natural that they would respond in this way. What's the problem? Here's the problem. These men appealed to Jesus for healing. Presumably, they had heard the rumors of this man who was healing people in other villages, who was healing even lepers like themselves. And they call, even call out to him and say, Master. But when they received the healing, it was clear that only one of them actually saw him as their master. So the, the problem isn't merely that they're ungrateful. It's the, that's not the big problem here. The big problem isn't that the nine lepers are rude. You know, that we have a problem of of how to be polite when you meet Jesus. The problem is that they failed to see Jesus for who he really was. They saw all the benefits of Jesus. We will be respectful. We will be included. They saw the benefits, but they missed out on the greatest gift of all. But one of them didn't. There was one who, while the others pushed on, you know, shedding their tattered rags, maybe throwing them out like Mardi Gras beads, turned around and fell at Jesus' feet and gave him thanks. And then Luke gives us, he saves this detail until the very last moment. He gives us a very surprising detail. This one was a Samaritan. Now, this little detail is packed with meaning. Samaritans were viewed as a sort of half-breed to the Jews. The Samaritans and the Jews, when Jesus says You know, go and show yourself to the priest. They would not have even agreed about which priest and which temple they were supposed to go to. They didn't even worship at the same places or recognize the same places of worship. This one leper is the least likely of the group that should understand what is happening. But the difference between him and the other nine is that he sees through the benefits and he sees through and sees Jesus as the true priest. He sees through them and sees Jesus as the true temple. He looks at Jesus and he sees the God who has saved him. That fact and that fact alone is what leads him to respond rightly to Jesus. So if you want to respond rightly to Jesus, if you want to be like the one and not the nine, the key is that you have to ask yourself, who are you looking to to end your shame And end your exclusion? Yourself? Can you hide your shame well enough? Can you draw near enough to life and happiness to finally feel excluded? I mean, included? Someone else? Can can they make you feel good enough for a long enough time? Or does eventually the shame creep back in? Do you feel like you have to constantly? pretend to be someone else, lest they discover the thing that is, you're so ashamed about and then again exclude you? Or are you looking to the benefits of a good life, even a faithful Christian life on the appearance instead of Jesus? You can, can you do enough good things to wipe the slate clean or can you do enough good things to just forget long enough and move on with your week? Shame and Exclusion are common to the human condition. There's not one person here that does not, for some reason or another, feel shame or feel excluded. And there's not one person in here that for, as we said earlier, is not excluded from the presence of God by our sin. The only question that really matters is what are you going to do with your shame and exclusion? The one leper shows us the right way. You gotta look to Jesus. Find your healing from Jesus. If you want your shame removed, if you want your exclusion ended, if you want to experience the love of God and the intimacy of his presence, if you want to be cleansed and forgiven, then you have to place your faith in Jesus alone. And when he heals you, you'll find a freedom far greater than the nine lepers. Right? They they had to feel just a sigh of relief. All of this freedom finally freed from all that had kept them out. And yet, the one that falls down Jesus' feet has far more freedom than them because he has found gratitude. This is what we'll close with, just a few thoughts about gratitude that define this passage. I spent a lot of time this last week reading about gratitude. And believe it or not, at least if you believe the headlines, gratitude is in right now. The New York Times ran an article in June titled, Gratitude really is good for you. Here's what science shows. It's pretty much the whole article, uh, citing numerous studies and, and uh, numerous studies and scientists, and even personal anecdotes from people's lives. This this article wants to make the case that if you can find regular rhythms of gratitude in your life. You'll have numerous benefits. Uh, there's, there's so many that they can list. Relationships will be better. Your physical health will be better. Emotional and psychological health will be better. You'll have enhanced empathy, reduced aggression. You'll have better sleep, better self-esteem, and better mental resilience. Sounds pretty great. That sounds pretty freeing. If I can tell you if I was sleeping better, if I had uh, you know, better mental resilience, if I had reduced aggression, I too would feel much more free in my life. That sounds great. I don't deny any one of these findings about the benefits of gratitude. But I would guess that if you're like me, you know, the average person, that finding rhythms of gratitude unto God, especially, feels so far away, or forgotten, or, or maybe even foolish. In the world of mass media, where we are day after day paraded with, with news cycles and images and stories that lead us into this, this never-ending cycle of cynicism, Gratitude feels like an impossibility. Or or rather, maybe just by the images and the things that we see and the lives we see other people living, uh, how can we be grateful when we see there's so much better life out there that we could be living? Or rather, maybe we're too busy to seek out intentional rhythms of gratitude. I mean, when am I supposed to cram in this gratitude you mentioned? You know, between work, when I'm taking my kids to the soccer practice, and I'm eating dinner while I drive? Or between class? While I'm cramming for the test that I'm studying, you know, that I'm on my way to take and I and I'm also walking there, right, Gratitude may be good. It's you know, just like I know that eating salad every day for lunch is good for me, but for my everyday life, I need something quicker and cheaper and easier to get me through the day. Or like these lepers, maybe we find it easier to ask for things and to receive them, better health better relationships, wisdom protection more. Maybe we find it easier to ask for things and receive them, but then we just move on far too quickly. Here's what I want us to see. If we are going to inhabit this world in a way that responds rightly to Jesus Christ, returning to him, giving him thanks, giving him praise, and therefore finding the freedom there, then we may need practices like a gratitude jar. You may need practices like a gratitude journal, but more than anything, we need to see Jesus as our God who has saved us from our sin, and we need to see Jesus as the one from whom all good things flow. There's one author that described the way that Christians should inhabit this world in gratitude as like we should be these spiritual Sherlock Holmeses, uh, tracing all of our benefits, any, any good thing that we receive, trying to f- investigate them and trace them to their source. And he says, if we do that, we would find our way back time and time again. We'd find our way back to Jesus. So my encouragement as we close out today is for each one of us to take up this task. Maybe just take some time this afternoon. Think about your life. All the good things that you have. Do the work of tracing them back to their source. And if you trace them back far enough, I believe you'll find that any good thing you have, probably came from another. And then if you find, okay, let's trace it back from there before, you'll find that it's dependent on all sorts of other events and circumstances that were outside of your control. And if we had the eyes to see and the minds to comprehend it, then we would find that every good thing, every blessing we have traces back to our God in heaven, to the Son who sits at the right hand of God the Father, and we would praise Him. We'd fall down like this one leper. We would respond rightly to him. And we would not be included in the group that when Jesus asked, where are the others? But that we would fall down at his feet and Jesus would look at us and say, rise, your faith has made you well. Let's pray.